This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day to day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, columnist Marina Hyde reviews a truly bonkers week that finally saw the end of Boris Johnson's reign. Journalist Rebecca Seal asks, are our smartphones giving us digital amnesia? Writer Tim Lewis interviews actor and writer of BBC Three's comedy drama, Back to Life, Daisy Haggard. And finally, journalist Francisco Garcia introduces us to the weird and wonderful world of celebrity lookalikes. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Before we jump in, a quick warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. First up, this week, the country witnessed a political spectacle rarely rivaled as Boris Johnson's house of cards finally tumbled down around him. Johnson had survived three years of scandals to be taken down over his handling of harassment allegations against Chris Pincher, the deputy chief whip who resigned last week. Our columnist Marina Hyde watched it all unfold. This piece is read by Laura Shavin. Boris Johnson is leaving office with the same dignity he brought to it. None. I've seen more elegant prolapses. Having spent 36 hours on the run from what other people know as consequences, Downing Street's Raoul Moat was finally smoked out of his storm drain on Thursday having awoken that morning with what one aide described portentously as a moment of clarity. I mean, he'd lost 57 ministers and been booed everywhere from the steps of St Paul's to the cricket. Hard to know how much more clarity could have been offered to this big brain, short of a plane flying over Downing Street, trailing a banner reading, You want picking up in the morning, pal? This is the version of Jaws, where the shark eats the mare, and the entire beach is rooting for the shark. They got Al Capone on tax evasion. They got Al Johnson on evasion. Character is fate, and the Prime Minister was undone by his lifelong pathological inability to tell the truth. Johnson's ridiculously graceless resignation speech 
ran the gamut from pettiness to miscast victimhood, a sort of bozymandias, where the vainglory stood in painfully unfortunate contrast to the fact it was all lying in ruins around him. As the booze threatened to overwhelm his delivery, it was clear that what would satisfy the crowds was him being made to do a walk of shame like some blobby Cersei Lannister, same hairdo. Failing that, he should have been wheeled out of Downing Street in the booze suitcase. I saw that preposterous old tit David Meller running towards a TV camera to claim Johnson's downfall was a tragedy worthy of Shakespeare, which makes you realise the writer Shakespeare could have been, if only he'd realised making Falstaff king would have been the banter option and the best way not to get Agincourt done. Watching Johnson fail to play Henry V for the past three years has been like watching the lift music version of Laurence Olivier have a crack at the role. The sort of Prime Minister that makes people leave reviews like Amazon, why is it not possible to give zero stars? Still, Johnson always said he didn't want to be a one-term Prime Minister. He will now not be a one-term Prime Minister. We'll return to him later. But first, let's have a look at some of the runners and riders competing for control of these sunlit uplands. Remember, make like Perseus and only look at them in your rearview shield. Ben Wallace. Ben once fumed on Twitter that Michael Gove would be Theon Greyjoy by the time I'm finished with him. Uh, then again, maybe it would actually be quite popular to run on a promise to relieve the Conservative Party of its penises. Suella Braverman. Literally might as well run for leadership of Starfleet. Or Mensa. Liz Truss. The risk is that Liz looks quite sane next to Suella in the way that Marilyn Manson would look like a 10 next to the Demogorgon. Rishi Sunak. Along with Javid, once described the rise of Skywalker as a great night out, and therefore should be immediately disqualified on grounds of judgment. Failed to even persuade his own wife to pay him tax. Currently joint favourite, naturally. Penny Mordant, the other current favourite reinforcing the notion that the less you know about these people, the better they look. Sajid Javid How madly overvalued is British political commentary? Well, we elected a newspaper columnist to run the entire country, and Javid's resignation speech was routinely described by professionals who apparently watched it as powerful and devastating when he fluffed his big lines and was more wooden than the Commons panelling. Still, a chance to give his previous non-dom status the attention Rishi Sunak's wife's non-dom status deprived it of when it emerged earlier this year. Tom Tugendhat will be hoping the Conservative Party could learn to be as pleased with him as he frequently appears with himself. Nadim Zahawi, one of three Secretaries of State for Education to have served under Johnson this week alone, Zahawi accepted his current position of Chancellor with suspicious alacrity considering it was like being promoted to ship's purser on the Titanic ten minutes after the ballroom had filled with water. I can't wait to find out more about Zahawi's business dealings, and feel we certainly shall do. Jeremy Ha... Sorry, I got bored before I finished typing his name. Arguably an electoral problem. Grant Shapps, the spreadsheet king of Wellin Hatfield, but could split his vote with one of his many aliases. Steve Baker, living testament to the ancient conservative principle that they've always got a worse idea up their sleeve. 
should wrestle with the question of how his just God can permit him. Pretty Patel, somehow yet to realize it won't take a wave machine to sink this boat. Back to Johnson, though, whose farewell speech demanded a single facetious question, will you be having a leaving do, mate? The answer, amazingly, is yes. Apparently, one of the reasons Johnson wants to cling on as caretaker, taking no big decisions, is because he and his wife are having a huge belated wedding party at Chequers later this month. Liggers to the last. The outcry has forced them to seek a new venue, but only because they were found out. It's like some especially grotesque version of the butterfly effect. How many Britons' lives will be affected, probably for the worse, by some dead duck's determination to hang around for his wedding party? In the worst economic crisis for generations, how might some struggling people's existences be made worse by this guy's attempt to sneak past Theresa May's number of days in office? What care, precisely, is being taken by this caretaker? Wedding parties, days in office here or there, what desperately small and pathetic ambitions these are, and how accurately they reflect the psychopathic political character of a man who never had a single belief in anything other than his own advancement. If you want a mildly consoling glimpse of Johnson's long prime ministerial afterlife, once his memoirs have sold, and sold well, then picture him being slapped awake by his handlers in some six-star Malaysian spa hotel, then trundled down to the conference anteroom to sit with other speakers like Al Gore and some sex case from the World Bank before going on stage to do his 500th rendition of The Speech, £120,000 a pop. Raging bull-style weight gain and gnawing despair come as standard. Ultimately, though, the disappointments and desolation are all ours. It was Johnson's world. We now have to live in it. It's quite sweet that people still talk of a realignment. I don't mean to cavil, but what the hell is aligned here? the UK will now have had four Prime Ministers in just over six years. It's a rolling mess, a joke to much of the world. The only thing you can really align yourself with is the view that it can always get even worse and even more chaotic. Send in the clowns. Ah, uh, don't bother. They're here. That was The Good News Johnson's on the way out. The bad news, look who's on the way in. By Marina Hyde. Read by Laura Shavin. Next. I can't remember anything. It's a common complaint these days. But is it because we rely so heavily on our smartphones? And do the endless alerts and distractions stop us forming new memories and even harm our ability to be insightful? Here... Journalist Rebecca Seal explores the impact this everyday item has when it exploits our biology and what we can do to help prevent further erosion. Read by Waleed Akhtar. Last week, I missed a real-life meeting because I hadn't set a reminder on my smartphone, leaving someone I'd never met before alone in a cafe. But on the same day, I remembered the name of the actor who played Will Smith's aunt in The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air in 1991. Janet Hubert. Memory is weird, unpredictable and, neuroscientifically, not yet entirely understood. When memory lapses like mine happen, which they do a lot, 
It feels both easy and logical to blame the technology we've so recently adopted. Does having more memory in our pockets mean there's less in our heads? Am I losing my ability to remember things, from appointments to what I was about to do next, because I expect my phone to do it for me? Before smartphones, our heads would have held a cache of phone numbers, and our memories would contain a cognitive map built up over time, which would allow us to navigate. For smartphone users, that is no longer true. Our brains and our smartphones form a complex web of interactions. The smartphoneification of life has been rising since the mid 2000s, but was accelerated by the pandemic, as was internet use in general. Prolonged periods of stress, isolation, and exhaustion, common themes since March 2020, are well known for their impact on memory. Of those surveyed by memory researcher Catherine Loveday in 2021, 80% felt that their memories were worse than before the pandemic. We are still shattered, not just by COVID-19, but also by the miserable national and global news cycle. Many of us self-soothe with distractions like social media. Meanwhile, endless scrolling can, at times, create its own distress. And phone notifications and self-interrupting to check for them also seem to affect what, how, and if we remember. So, what happens when we outsource part of our memory to an external device? Does it enable us to squeeze more and more out of life because we aren't as reliant on our fallible brains to cue things up for us? Are we so reliant on smartphones that they will ultimately change how our memories work, sometimes called digital amnesia? Or do we just occasionally miss stuff when we don't remember the reminders? Neuroscientists are divided. Chris Bird is professor of cognitive neuroscience in the School of Psychology at the University of Sussex and runs research by the Episodic Memory Group. We have always offloaded things into external devices, like writing down notes, and that's enabled us to have more complex lives. He says. I don't have a problem with using external devices to augment our thought processes or memory processes. We're doing it more, but that frees up time to concentrate, focus on, and remember other things. He thinks that the kind of things we use our phones to remember are, for most human brains, difficult to remember. I take a photo of my parking ticket so I know when it runs out because it's an arbitrary thing to remember. Our brains aren't evolved to remember highly specific one-off things. Before we had devices, you would have to make quite an effort to remember the time you needed to be back at your car. Professor Oliver Hart, who studies the neurobiology of memory and forgetting at McGill University in Montreal, is much more cautious. Once you stop using your memory, it will get worse, which makes you use your devices even more. He says we use them for everything. If you go to a website for a recipe, you press a button and it sends the ingredient list to your smartphone. It's very convenient, but convenience has a price. It's good for you to do certain things in your head. Hart is not keen on our reliance on GPS. We can predict that prolonged use of GPS likely will reduce grey matter density in the hippocampus. Reduced grey matter density in this brain area goes along with a variety of symptoms, such as increased risk for depression and other psychopathologies, but also certain forms of dementia. GPS-based navigational systems don't require you to form a complex geographic map. Instead, they just tell you orientations like "turn left at next light." These are very simple behavioural responses. Here, 
turn left, at a certain stimulus, here, traffic light. These kinds of spatial behaviours do not engage the hippocampus very much, unlike those spatial strategies that require the knowledge of a geographic map, in which you can locate any point, coming from any direction, and which requires cognitively complex computations. When exploring the spatial capacities of people who have been using GPS for a very long time, they show impairments in spatial memory abilities that require the hippocampus. Map reading is hard, and that's why we give it away to devices so easily. But hard things are good for you, because they engage cognitive processes and brain structures that have other effects on your general cognitive functioning. Hart doesn't have data yet, but believes the cost of this might be an enormous increase in dementia. The less you use that mind of yours, the less you use the systems that are responsible for complicated things like episodic memories or cognitive flexibility, the more likely it is to develop dementia. There are studies showing that, for example, it is really hard to get dementia when you're a university professor, and the reason is not that these people are smarter, it's that until old age, they are habitually engaged in tasks that are very mentally demanding. Other scientists disagree. Daniel Schachter, a Harvard psychologist, who wrote the seminal Seven Sins of Memory, How the Mind Forgets and Remembers, thinks effects from things like GPS are task-specific only. While smartphones can obviously open up whole new vistas of knowledge, they can also drag us away from the present moment. Like, it's a beautiful day, unexperienced because you're head down, WhatsApping a meal or a conversation. When we're not attending to an experience, we are less likely to recall it properly, and fewer recalled experiences could even limit our capacity to have new ideas and being creative. As the renowned neuroscientist and memory researcher Wendy Suzuki recently put it on the Huberman Lab Neuroscience podcast, if we can't remember what we've done, the information we've learned and the events of our lives, it changes us. The part of the brain which remembers really defines our personal histories. It defines who we are. Catherine Price, science writer and author of How to Break Up With Your Phone, concurs. What we pay attention to in the moment adds up to our life she says. Our brains cannot multitask. We think we can, but any moment where multitasking seems successful, it's because one of those tasks was not cognitively demanding, like you can fold laundry and listen to the radio. If you're paying attention to your phone, you're not paying attention to anything else. That might seem like a throwaway observation, but it's actually deeply profound, because you will only remember the things you pay attention to. If you're not paying attention, you're literally not going to have a memory of it to remember. The Cambridge neuroscientist Barbara Sahakian has evidence of this too. In an experiment in 2010, three different groups had to complete a reading task, she says. One group got instant messaging before it started, one got instant messaging during the task, and one got no instant messaging. And then there was a comprehension test. What they found was the people getting instant messages couldn't remember what they just read. Price is much more worried about what being perpetually distracted by our phones, termed continual partial attention by the tech expert Linda Stone, does to our memories than using their simpler functions. I'm not getting distracted by my address book, she says, and she doesn't believe smartphones free us up to do more. Let's be real with ourselves. How many of us are using the time afforded us by our banking app to write poetry? We just passively consume crap on Instagram. Price is from Philadelphia. 
What would have happened if Benjamin Franklin had had Twitter? Would he have been on Twitter all the time? Would he have made his inventions and breakthroughs? I became really interested in whether the constant distractions caused by our devices might be impacting our ability to actually not just accumulate memories to begin with, but transfer them into long-term storage in a way that might impede our ability to think deep and interesting thoughts, she says. One of the things that impedes our brain's ability to transfer memories from short to long-term storage is distraction. If you get distracted in the middle of it, by a notification or by the overwhelming urge to pick up your phone, you're not actually going to have the physical changes take place that are required to store that memory. It's impossible to know for sure, because no one measured our level of intellectual creativity before smartphones took off. But Price thinks smartphone overuse could be harming our ability to be insightful. An insight is being able to connect two disparate things in your mind. But in order to have an insight and be creative, you have to have a lot of raw material in your brain. Like you couldn't cook a recipe if you didn't have any ingredients. You can't have an insight if you don't have the material in your brain, which really is long-term memories. Her theory was backed by the 92-year-old Nobel Prize-winning neuroscientist and biochemist Eric Kandel, who has studied how distraction affects memory. Price bumped into him on a train and grilled him about her idea. I got a selfie of me with a giant grin and Eric looking a bit confused. Psychologist Professor Larry Rosen, co-author with neuroscientist Adam Gasly of The Distracted Mind, Ancient Brains and a High-Tech World, also agrees. Constant distractions make it difficult to encode information in memory. Smartphones are, of course, made to hijack our attention. The apps that make money by taking our attention are designed to interrupt us, says Price. I think of notifications as interruptions because that's what they're doing. For Oliver Hart, phones exploit our biology. A human is a very vulnerable animal, and the only reason we are not extinct is that we have a superior brain. To avoid predation and find food, we have had to be really good at being attentive to our environment. Our attention can shift rapidly around, and when it does, everything else that was being attended to stops, which is why we can't multitask. When we focus on something, it's a survival mechanism. You're in the savannah or the jungle, and you hear a branch cracking. You give your total attention to that, which is useful. It causes a short stress reaction, a slight arousal, and activates the sympathetic nervous system. It optimizes your cognitive abilities and sets the body up for fighting or flighting. But it's much less useful now. Now, 30,000 years later, we're here with that exact brain and every phone notification we hear is a twig snapping in the forest, simulating what was important to what we were a frightened little animal. Smartphone use can even change the brain, according to the ongoing ABCD study, which is tracking over 10,000 American children through to adulthood. It started by examining 10-year-olds both with paper and pencil measures and an MRI, and one of their most interesting early results was that there was a relationship between tech use and cortical thinning, says Larry Rosen, who studies social media technology and the brain. Young children who use more tech had a thinner cortex, which is supposed to happen at an older age. Cortical thinning is a normal part of growing up and then ageing, and in much later life can be associated with degenerative diseases, such as Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, as well as migraines. Obviously, the smartphone genie is out of the bottle, and has run over the hills and far away. 
We need our smartphones to access offices, attend events, pay for travel, and to function as tickets, passes and credit cards, as well as for emails, calls and messages. It's very hard not to have one. If we're worried about what they, or the apps on them, might be doing to our memories, what should we do? Rosen discusses a number of tactics in his book. My favourites are tech breaks, he says, where you start by doing whatever on your devices for one minute and then set an alarm for 15 minutes' time. Silence your phone and place it upside down, but within your view as a stimulus to tell your brain that you will have another one-minute tech break after the 15-minute alarm. Continue until you adapt to 15 minutes focus time and then increase to 20. If you can get to 60 minutes of focus time with short tech breaks before and after, that's a success. If you think your memory and focus have got worse and you're blaming things like your age, your job or your kids, that might be true. But it's also very likely due to the way you're interacting with your devices, says Price, who founded Screen Life Balance, to help people manage their phone use. As a science writer, she's very much into randomly controlled trials, but with phones, it's actually more of a qualitative question about personally how it's impacting you. And it's really easy to do your own experiment and see if it makes a difference. It's great to have scientific evidence, but we can also intuitively know. If you practice keeping your phone away more and you notice that you feel calmer and you're remembering more, then you've answered your own question. That was Is Your Smartphone Ruining Your Memory? A special report on the rise of digital amnesia by Rebecca Seal. Read by Walid Akhtar. We'll be back after this short break. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, Faker Others here. This summer, the UK will play host to the Women's Euro Championship. I would say it's going to be a seminal moment, but I have promised my producers that that kind of chat is not going to be allowed on our brand new podcast, The Guardian's Women's Football Weekly. Throughout July, myself, Susie Rack and a bunch of women's football experts will be on hand three times a week to provide instant reaction and analysis from the tournament. We'll be launching with a preview episode on Monday the 4th of July, so make sure to search, subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. The Guardian Women's Football Weekly is supported by Visa. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, after a string of hits including Uncle, Episodes, Readers 
and now her very own creation with Laura Solon, Back to Life, the actor and writer Daisy Haggard is hot property. So why does she only want to discuss crisps? Here, Tim Lewis explores her obsession with the underdog, the benefits of being bottom of the class, and what doing a Daisy really means. Read by Annika Harry. In March, Daisy Haggard finished shooting the third season of Breeders, the uncomfortably honest comedy about parenting, in which she stars alongside Martin Freeman. The plan was to spend the next few months working on her own scripts. Haggard is hot property as a writer these days, following two series of the excellent BBC sadcom Back to Life, the story of a woman who returns to her small town after a long stint in prison, which she created, co-wrote with Laura Solon, and starred in. Now was the time to crack on. She had a couple of ideas for feature films she wanted to pursue, and another TV show, and though she wasn't thinking she'd make any more Back to Life, certainly not straight away, there was also clamour to revisit that. April, Haggard admits, was pretty much a bust. There was Easter, the school holidays, and she had the other highly important things on her mind, such as finding out when the reality show Love is Blind will return. But peak procrastination arrived in early May. After several weeks of intense research, she adopted a rescue puppy, Betty, a scruffy five-month-old Dachshund Poodle CGO Italiano Yorkie Bichon Frise Cocker Mix with a broken elbow. Betty has landed in a loving, crowded home in the South London Burbs, which Haggard shares with her partner Joe, their two daughters, aged seven and four, and two previous rescue dogs. So I sit on a bed with a laptop and three dogs holding rawhide bones and then writing with my other hand, says Haggard. It's been said to me by my friends, well, you're just doing a daisy, she acts appalled. I'm like, what do you mean? And they're like, you create a bit of chaos and then suddenly you write. Because I wrote back to life when I just had my second child. She was a month old and I wrote the second season in lockdown with both kids, no childcare and a puppy. But then I spent 20 years in a flat in Brixton in my pants not doing anything. So maybe there's something going on there. Send that to a therapist. We meet in mid-June at a photo studio near Brixton. Is Haggard making better progress with her writing? <sighs> Whatever it is, it's not working yet, she sighs, before a look of determination takes over. But it will. Haggard is 44 and describes her career until recent years as loads of little moments with things, a bit bitty, yeah. She's being modest. She has reliably popped up in many of the best British comedies of the past two decades, among them Manstroke Woman, Psychoville and Episodes. She'd sometimes have people come up to her and say they thought she was brilliant in Smack the Pony, which, to be clear, she wasn't in. But Haggard is right that with Breeders and Back to Life, she has found two shows that allow her to showcase fully what a deft comic performer she is. Daisy is a superbly nuanced dramatic actor who also has the most highly developed sense of, well, mischief, says Chris Addison, who co-created Breeders with Martin Freeman and Simon Blackwell. She's got funny bones, Haggard. That kind of thing you can't acquire. You either have them or you don't. You could try to dissect it and figure out what makes her such a good comic actress, but ultimately, it's just because she's Daisy. Blackwell, who writes Breeders and has previously worked on The Thick of It and Veep, agrees. She's a great dramatic actor and a natural comedian, he says. 
That's such a rare skill, to be emotionally real while nailing the comedy. It's an instinctive thing, and it makes her a total joy to write for. At the heart of Breeders is Haggard's easy chemistry with Freeman, as the stretched, sometimes beleaguered, often apoplectic parents of two kids. The pair have known each other for years. Haggard is godmother to one of Freeman's children, but had never worked together before. She's one of those people who has a natural intelligence that means she just gets what is required with very little explanation needed, ever, says Freeman. Also, she makes light work of it. There's no overthinking. Sometimes no thinking full stop. How is she as a godparent? She's crazy about kids. Or mine, anyway, Freeman replies. She is this bundle of enthusiasm and fun. Daisy is the original Earth Mother, and also very silly, to an Olympic degree. I take the piss out of her a lot, but often she beats me to it. It's laughably easy to find people to say complimentary things about Haggard, and when you meet her, it's not hard to see why. She has warmth, self-deprecation and goofiness. We spend the first ten minutes of the interview talking about crisps, for Christmas, a few years ago, her husband commissioned a necklace featuring a frazzle, a walker's square and a monster munch, which clearly delighted her. When we finally move on to other subjects, she seems disappointed. Let's just talk about what's-its, she says. Can we not talk about work? From those who know Haggard personally and professionally, there seems genuine pleasure that the rest of us are finally twigging how great she is. No, things are going really well, says Haggard. But also, it's quite nice when things go well when you're in your late 30s, early 40s. My plan was, the day I left drama school, the phone would ring and I'd become a movie star. And then I worked in a gym for 10 years. I've quit so many jobs so many times and then had to go back to them and go, Hi, um, that whole thing about me quitting? So it's nice to have this now because your feet are on the ground. My priorities feel very set and in order she goes on. I feel like, just take the moment, enjoy this, because tomorrow might be really different. Don't expect everything to last forever. Haggard's father is Piers Haggard, the BAFTA-winning director of Dennis Potter's Pennies from Heaven, and also the cult horror films The Blood on Satan's Claw and 1981's Venom, starring Oliver Reed and Klaus Kinski, about a black mamba that picks the characters off one by one but she contests the idea that she was born into acting. Haggard put herself forward for school plays, but was never selected. Eventually, in the last production before she left, she was cast as Miss Hannigan, the main antagonist in the musical Annie. School, more generally, was a struggle. Yeah, I was pretty bad at everything, Haggard says. I had a really short skirt, though. I was really good at that, she laughs. No, I just didn't like school. I don't think that school is for everyone. Is it? I mean, of course it is for everyone, and I'm happy with the way it's gone. If I really like something, I could devote everything to it. I'm up all night working. But if I don't, I just can't concentrate. Haggard was the youngest of her father's six children, two of whom he had with her mother, Anna Sklovsky, an artist who makes stained glass windows. My parents were weirdly puritanical about television, but I did watch some very extreme horror films quite young, she recalls. I did watch Venom, probably way too young. 
We had the pretend black mamba in the dressing up box along with Satan's claw from the blood on Satan's claw. So we had some very good props for our dressing up. There was a lot of craft and making in the Haggard household. It was always like, what can you make with a margarine container? See you in two hours. And aged 11, Haggard started work on her first script. It was going pretty well until she hit puberty and her writing took a somewhat gratuitous turn when a painter decorator turned up in a scene and whipped off his shirt, Diet Cocad style. After drama school, Haggard wrote in fits and starts. She thought there might be a comedy loosely based on the gym she worked in. On reception, I hasten to add, I didn't ever step in the gym, but it didn't quite come together. Another idea had interest from Channel 4, but nothing came of it. I always wanted to be a writer, but I'd given up almost, she says. I thought, oh, well, that's it now. The idea that stuck came from Haggard noticing that women who commit serious crimes often face a more complicated rehabilitation when they come out of prison than men do. Back to Life is certainly not an obvious conceit for a comedy. It follows Miri Matteson, Haggard, as she attempts to re-enter society after a life sentence for murdering her best friend, Lara, as a teenager. Back home in Kent, living with her parents, Miri is excluded, attacked and betrayed by almost everyone close to her. Somehow, though, Haggard and Solon create pathos and humour from these bleak scenarios. Back to life's ability to move you from tears to laughter within a line, let alone a scene, remains undiminished, wrote Lucy Mangan in her Guardian review. I'm obsessed with the underdog, says Haggard, talking of Miri now. And I think that people related to her optimism and her determination. We really did put Miri through a lot. Then I suppose it's its own beast, isn't it? It's a bit spooky, a bit funny, a bit... I'll never write something that's just one thing, but it would always have to be silly because I think everything's a bit silly. Many details from Haggard's own life found their way into Back to Life. When Miri is lectured by her dad about how to pack the dishwasher, that is pure Piers Haggard. Haggard's mother, though, is keen to point out that there is a lot of fiction in the depictions too. My mum has never pleasured an ex-boyfriend, says Haggard. She would like that known. Haggard retains a don't-jinx-it bemusement about the position she now finds herself in. I still think about that girl at school who was always at the bottom of the class and always didn't get into any school plays, says Haggard. It has been quite useful in life because I never expected to be good at anything. I think it's harder if you're amazing at school and then you go out and realise everyone's amazing. I never thought I was, so I came out and went, oh, let's see how that goes. While Back to Life is all-consuming for Haggard, Breeders allows her to show up and read someone else's, typically Simon Blackwell's, very funny lines. I just get to go and do a job rather than lie awake at night panicking about what someone's wearing, she says. The first series of the show, which aired on Sky in 2020, set out to depict the realistic underbelly of parenting. It found Paul, Freeman and Ali, Haggard, with young children who wouldn't sleep and were obsessed with unlikely calamitous events such as burglars and fires. Last year's second series jumped the family story on about five years and went into more emotionally fraught and complex territory. The new series of Breeders picks up where the last one left off. But while up until now most of the fireworks have been between Paul and his teenage son Luke, this time the main clashes are between Ali and their daughter Ava. 
For Haggard, making breeders has had strange delayed parallels with her life at home. When she filmed her audition, she was rocking her three-week-old baby with her foot in a car seat and keeping her older daughter placated by letting her binge watch in the night garden. Breeders has always been ahead of me. The kids have always been older than mine, she says. So it's like a depressing prophecy of what my future holds. In particular, Haggard now understands the ragey feeling that sometimes descends as a parent. It's a policy on breeders that where child actors are involved, obscene words are switched with milder alternatives and then dubbed. There was one point where I had to talk about a clock ring, she recalls with a snigger. And I'm such a bad giggler anyway, so about six hours later, everyone's like, fucking hell, just swear, Daisy. Or you're meant to be really angry and you're like, how fudging dare you? So I was delighted that this series, the kids were old enough that we could be a bit ruder. One of the satisfactions of Breeders and Back to Life is that both productions are set up to work family-friendly hours. Along with a wide selection of retro snacks and crisps, it's something that Haggard insists on now. Historically, there's been a weird idea that if you're not suffering, then that's not cool, she says. But why the hell can't we have a nice time while we're doing what we do? I really am over that now. Like, if someone said to me, there's this really gruelling, horrible job, but you're going to be so good in it, I'd be like, thank you, someone else can do that. I'm going to stay at home and put my feet up. I won't do that really horrible, dreadful experience. I would choose to have a nice time and go on holiday. With both Breeders and Back to Life having been taken on by broadcasters in the States, Haggard now has an American agent. The hardest part has been communicating with them that she doesn't imagine her career as world-conquering. No, I don't think I'll do much in my life, she says. I had a meeting with an agent and I just spent two months with my family in Greece or something and this guy went, don't you worry, if you come with us, that will never happen again. And I was like, okay. Then he said, you could do this, you could do this, you could do this, you could do this. And I said, oh, the thing about me is I don't want to do everything. I just want to do a few things really well and then have a nice time. And there was this total silence. There was honestly tumbleweed. Haggard's friends would probably call this doing a daisy. She smiles. Needless to say, I didn't end up with that agent. That was Daisy Haggard, Forget Work, Let's Just Talk About What Sits, by Tim Lewis, read by Annika Harry. Finally, earning a living by resembling someone famous is a strange, unpredictable business, particularly when you're at the mercy of the disgraced or the permanently out of fashion. Here, Madonna, Michelle Obama, Prince Charles and Johnny Depp offer journalist Francisco Garcia some insights into what it's like to look like someone else. Read by Walid Akhtar. It's not always easy being Johnny Depp. That's certainly the impression I get after an afternoon at the South Ayrshire home of Andy MacDonald, artist, musician, and Scotland's premier Captain Jack Sparrow impersonator. Depp's recent legal entanglements mean Captain Jack didn't quite carry the same pull he used to for a while. And no, the chaos of the pandemic years hasn't helped either, slowing a once busy sideline even further down to zero. 
McDonald began his unusual career at a fancy dress party in the late 2000s, which he attended in his ordinary clothes. He hadn't seen a single frame of a Pirates of the Caribbean film, but the other guests wouldn't shut up about his likeness to Depp's lead character. They went on about it so much that I ended up just deciding to give it a go, he explains. I'm still amazed by the reaction I get. No one knows I'm Scottish. I do the voice, the mannerisms. I have whole conversations in character. I've seen a couple of other guys, and they can only do lines from the movie. But the last few years haven't exactly been straightforward for MacDonald, a single father, and certainly Depp's court appearances haven't helped. I wasn't following it at all, though a lot of my mates were. If he was found to be that sort of person, I'd have had to give it all up. I wouldn't have been happy portraying someone like that. I've had cars stop in the street and ask how the trial's going. I've had people come up to me and say wife-beater and stuff like that. Certainly, the career of a celebrity lookalike is not for the easily disheartened. There are few more unstable or fickle industries by its very nature. At no time is your fate really your own, but instead, that of the celeb you happen to be impersonating. Fashions change and scandals break. Elections sweep household name politicians into immediate obscurity and beloved football managers are guillotined with spectacular ruthlessness. One unforeseeable move, and tidy livelihoods can be reduced to rubble with dizzying speed. UK lookalike history is filled with the ghosts of the disgraced, or the permanently out of fashion, from Rolf Harris to Tony Blair. If this inbuilt precarity was a cost of doing business before 2020, then matters weren't improved by the onset of the pandemic. When Covid hit, it didn't really matter who you were or how well established, things were tough all over. For many who didn't fancy trying to eke out a living in cameo appearances or via sporadic online video bookings, it meant falling back on other work. Even in the best of times, only an elite minority make their entire income from full-time impersonating or sacking the whole thing off entirely. Thankfully, the industry has embarked on a spirited fight back as I find out when I speak with Andy Harmer, co-founder of the Eastbourne-based Lookalikes Agency, one of the biggest of its kind in the UK, with well over 2,000 lookalikes and tribute acts on its books. Harmer has serious pedigree, having spent two decades as one of the world's most successful David Beckham impersonators. Sure, it was hard in the teeth of lockdown, he tells me over the phone, but now things have come out the other side. It's been busy again, even with a depleted roster. Shorn of some old reliables. I've not got one Dell boy anymore. They've retired. Two of my queens don't drive, which was a nightmare with the Jubilee this year. The market isn't always rational. Far from it, Harmer explains. You have to be nimble to react to the vagaries of clients, as well as the news cycle. I get loads of weird requests every day and loads of new lookalikes coming in. Mostly, it's a case of clients approaching him directly though he occasionally hands his card out when confronted with an exceptional likeness in the wild. The reality of life as one of Britain's lookalikes is often resolutely unglamorous. A couple of hours spent at birthday parties and weddings, corporate functions, or even the odd advert or bit of television work as a stand-in or body double. Fees might range from a few hundred pounds to the low thousands, depending on the gig, a solid, if unpredictable, income stream. There are benefits. There will always be special memories for MacDonald from his work trips across Europe and Japan. I went out dressed as Jack and everyone went nuts. 
But after the catalogue of scandals that have plagued Depp over the past half decade, there are those who just can't or won't acknowledge the dividing line between look-alike and the real thing. I've had people commenting on it as if I'm him. It makes you wary. People can flip just like that. In 2019, McDonald was assaulted while in character. It was the middle of the afternoon. The guy just snapped when I asked him politely to stop touching my bike. Some kinds of notoriety are more useful than others. A couple of weeks after the Oscars, I was in touch with a well-established Will Smith impersonator. Shad Ellis had been close to retiring his act of 25 years when the slap catapulted him into a blizzard of international bookings, he told The Sun. The request just kept on coming. He even turned down $5,000 from an American influencer who was working on a parody video, citing the desire to keep his work respectful to Smith. It can occasionally come as a surprise which characters endure and which sink without a trace. Dan has been performing his Danny B act, Ali G replete with full preternaturally shiny yellow tracksuit and goatee, for almost two decades. He fell in love with Sasha Baron Cohen's creation as a drama undergraduate at Liverpool John Moores University in the early 2000s. Dan's initial impressions in front of friends went down well. I then got an outfit together and put together a little video of me mucking about in a petting zoo or something like that. I sent it to a few lookalike agencies, and they started getting me gigs. Dan, a self-described jobbing actor, has worked hard to refine his act over the years, throwing in bits of stand-up and even finding a way to keep things relatively family-friendly. He still makes a tidy living at birthdays, bar mitzvahs and weddings across the country, even as Ali G has faded from immediate cultural relevance. I do a bit of voiceover work here and there, and a bit of writing where I can, but the tribute act has continuously been one of my main sources of income. He has two schools of thought, he explains, as to why the character has remained so popular. It's just so iconic that it doesn't seem to matter that it started so many years ago, and my act has an appeal in that it's funny and it's a show that fits neatly around an event, and I hope that doesn't sound like I'm blowing my own trumpet. For others, the path to look-alikedom is decidedly more random. Nottingham-based civil servant Dion Rose certainly never planned to carve out a niche as a Michelle Obama impersonator. But that's exactly what happened during the build-up to Barack's inauguration in early 2009. During the campaign, people would come up to me saying I looked like Michelle. I just laughed it off and took it as a compliment. It got to the stage where everywhere I went, people were saying it. At a friend's urging... Rose eventually decided to send a few photos to Susan Scott Lookalikes, a leading London-based agency. That same afternoon, she was booked for a photo shoot in the capital with the Daily Mail. It just took off from there. People have invited me to give awards and do presentations. I was on BBC East Midlands. The biggest thing which I really enjoyed was being on GMTV with Lorraine Kelly. Naturally, things have been quieter since 2016, The invites and booking requests mostly dried up when the Trump administration came into office, though Rose is sanguine. It was fun. I didn't take it seriously, as I always had a full-time job. It was a sideline thing, a bit of excitement that I was thrown into, really. I don't mind the attention, but not too much of it, if you know what I mean. My own lookalike fascination started in a packed Derbyshire field in early July 2016 at the annual Sausage and Cider Festival held in the vast grounds of an 18th century stately home. The journey up from London had been particularly stressful, a mess of overpacked trains and signal failure, but it was worth it to see my family who lived nearby. 
but it was also worth it, frankly, for the entertainment. Miss Madonna, Navi as Michael Jackson, the only impersonator to officially work for Michael Jackson as a decoy, screams the bio on his management's website. Planet Abba, Simply Spice Girls, just a selection from the bill of A-list tribute acts that day, offered up for an entirely reasonable £10 entrance fee. Memories of the afternoon itself now exist mostly as a series of quasi-psychedelic fragments, a ghostly figure dressed as Woody from Toy Story, presiding over the ritual sausage-eating contest, a three-piece band serenading a hologram of a Leicester City football top-clad Richard III, the furious intensity of a Keith Flint double, performed to an equally enthusiastic sunset audience, multi-generational fun, with just enough hints of derangement to keep things interesting. How often, after all, do you get to see ABBA back-to-back with the prodigy in the middle of rural Derbyshire? When I tell Jodie Jackson, a.k.a. Miss Madonna, as of 2013, she has officially been the UK's number one Madonna tribute act, that I'd seen her perform that afternoon, she responds with a cackle. Oh my God, the Sausage and Cider Festival. Yeah, that would have been me. That's bizarre. Miss Madonna is a tribute act, rather than a straightforward lookalike. It's a distinction that matters. Born and raised in Hull to working-class parents, from early childhood, Jackson had always longed to be a performer. After going to drama school in Surrey, she toured the world dancing in a South American circus and taking roles in Monte Carlo and London's West End. It was only in 2009 that Miss Madonna came into being. I thought it was a bit strange at first, being somebody else, she says, but it's been 13 years now and I never dreamed I'd still be doing it today. But I've got bookings into next year. As long as people keep paying me, I'll carry on. Despite Jackson's success, the onset of the pandemic still represented a nightmare. As gig after gig evaporated, Jackson took a series of stopgap jobs, from graveyard shifts at Tesco to administering COVID tests at Hull Prison. I couldn't just sit at home. I'd be bored. The gyms were shut. You couldn't go anywhere or do anything. The first gigs back were strange, with fully masked and seated audiences, though it didn't take long to get back into a well-rehearsed groove. Madonna is a spectacle. It's a show. So I put on a show. You know, with the lights, the costume. It's the whole package. For those inside the world of celebrity impersonation, it could be a tight-knit community, though one with its own fairly rigid hierarchy and divisions. The difference between look-alike and tribute act is hardly trivial to those with a stake in the game. Bedfordshire-based Guy Ingle, THE Prince Charles impersonator, according to his website, is quite clear on this when we speak. My job is as an entertainer and an actor. A lot of these lookalikes have regular jobs, regular incomes. People like me don't. Covid knocked my business for six. The government gave us a bit of help, but that's it. Like so many I spoke with, Ingall is keen to stress just how unpredictable their line of work is. It's really all or nothing. I'm off to say hello to people at a shopping centre in West Bromwich for the Platinum Jubilee. It's like when Harry and Meghan got married. I must have earned about £4,000 that week. But it's up and down. He certainly doesn't want to disparage any other lookalikes, even those who stand there like a mannequin. I love them all to bits, and I'll help anyone if I can. If they need a queen, then I'll suggest one. During the end of my time with Andy MacDonald, I ask if he has any plans to resurrect his Jack Sparrow act. It's hard, he explains, to think about it too much considering his other responsibilities. Most pressingly is the need to look after his young daughter and sell enough of his art to survive month by month. I would do it, but I really don't know, to be honest. Everything is still so up in the air. 
There were good times, for sure. But these days, MacDonald increasingly values his privacy. Recognition is an odd thing. You're an easy target when people find out what you do. Somehow, it's like they feel they own a piece of you. That was Double Take, The Weird and Wonderful World of Celebrity Lookalikes by Francisco Garcia, read by Walid Akhtar. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Laura Shavin, Annika Harry and Walid Akhtar and presented by me, Savannah Ayoade greaves This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. Original music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producer was Danielle Stevens. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.